Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo has just wrapped up her 40-day visit to China. While China and the U.S. have both emphasized the importance of maintaining stable economic ties, bilateral relations are still fraught with tensions and uncertainty. What has been achieved during Raimondo's trip? Have the recent high-level meetings paved a clearer path for the future development of China-U.S. relations? To help us answer these questions, I'm joined today by Jeffrey Towson, partner of Tech Mode Consulting, Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies of National Institute for Global Strategy, Andy Mork, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, and Dr. William Li, Chief Economist at the Milking Institute. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qinduo. Well, welcome to Dialogue. Uh, so, Zhao Hai, I will start with you. This is 4D visit has just uh, finished by Commerce uh, Secretary Gina Raimondo. I wonder what's your takeaway of her trip here to Beijing? I think we can read the trip as successful. Uh, the 4D trip has produced a, a lot of uh, fruitful and practical resolutions between the two countries and particularly established or what we can say re-established uh, regular connections between the two sides. And uh, the particularly uh, establishment of the commercial issue working group uh, will help to the two sides to meet twice a year. And that will establish a stable communication channel that uh, actually complies with the two leaders' spirit since last uh, fall. And moving forward, there are also regular meetings between the Commerce Secretary and also China's uh, Minister of Commerce. And also there are um, working mechanisms on exchanging information on export control. So there are signs uh, that uh, in many areas, the two sides decided to have a more practical working relationship. And that is very helpful moving forward uh, with this very complex bilateral relationship, particularly related to commercial uh, issues between the two sides. There are still very large trade remaining between the two sides and large investments across borders and uh, U.S. companies still working in China and Chinese companies are looking forward to invest in the U.S. So I think there are many unresolved issues still on the table, but in the uh, next, uh, uh, the following months, hopefully the two sides can use the uh, newly established mechanism to continue uh, move on the agenda and try to resolve some of the most difficult issues. William, indeed, uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo herself uh, has called the 40 trip as constructive and successful. I wonder, what's your take? I think Secretary Raimondo has, I think, told everyone the most important thing about the United States and China is that we reduce uncertainty and reduce the kind of uncertainty that comes about without discussion and dialogue. Uh, we we want to make clear our national interests and commercial interests and also find the common ground where we can actually develop productive commercial relationships. And, and that's the, the thing that I think the Secretary has emphasized over and over again, that, uh, that both countries have national interests, national security interests. Uh, we want to promote high-tech development in both countries, and, and we want to find ways of doing it that will be beneficial for all involved. Well, Andy, you know, you do hear um, like almost like a change of tone from Secretary Raimondo when she talked about uh, the two countries, for example. Uh, she talked about this, uh, you know, 700 billion, uh, you know, commercial interests 
and also about uh, tourism and how tourism contributed to the creation of uh, 50,000 jobs in the U.S., for example, as well as, you know, deliverables on the table. So we can say that's a rather successful I mean, inter uh, action between the two sides here. Well, you're absolutely right, Tingdua. I mean, this is being portrayed by Secretary Raimondo, the U.S. side, as a successful trip. And I think there's a couple reasons for this in addition to what we just heard. So there's a cyclical domestic political reason, which is that we're coming up to 2024, and the Biden administration, I think, is looking at the very least to not make things worse with China and hopefully uh, have some positive impact, uh, whether that's on inflation, uh, whether that's you know, better investment. Of course, uh, foreign policy tends not to be a big deal in U.S. presidential elections, but certainly not to make things worse. From a secular perspective, I think there's also a recognition by the Biden administration that China's not going anywhere, and it's a force to be reckoned with. Look at the recent BRICS expansion. Look at uh, China's diplomatic achievements elsewhere around the world, brokering the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So I think that it's a, a recognition that uh, some accommodations need to be made, and it's uh, looking at the upcoming election. Uh, my hope is that, uh, that this continues. And as Winston Churchill said, uh, the U.S. always does the right thing, but after exhausting all other possibilities. <laughs> so hopefully we'll be on a path towards more productive and constructive uh, relationship uh, going forward. But again, we have to wait and see. Uh, but William, seems like, uh, you know, after this uh, trade war, you know, starting uh, from 2018 from the uh, uh, Trump administration and then we have the Biden administration basically doubling down on the restrictions of export or banning of investment. But again, you know, China is the second largest economy, the largest trading nation. And as uh, Andy has said that, uh, so there's an acceptance of the reality? There's an acceptance that the type of relationship we want to have is certainly not decoupling. The notion of de-risking really means to, to state what it is that we are able to trade with and what it is that we cannot trade with. Um, and also how it is that we can develop our national interests by increasing our sources of supply and changing supply chains globally. That doesn't hurt the interests of China. In fact, by having different uh, sources of, uh, you know, uh, of, of supply and, and, and by developing our own uh, electronics industry and, and semiconductor industry, it helps to develop and push the frontier forward. And I think that's a, a, something that's of interest to both countries. So I think the, the kind of uncertainty that's being relieved uh, by having these dialogues is very important. And, and going forward, that's what Secretary Mondo has emphasized is going to be key to the relationship between two countries. And the trade wars so, or so-called trade wars are, have, have really gotten in the way. And it's because there's no framework. And have, having a framework for that trade is something that we still have to establish. Andy, of course, you know, before departing for uh, China, uh, Raimondo said the mission of the trip uh, was to protect what we must and promote where we can. The direct quote from uh, uh, Secretary Raimondo. So uh, tell us, you know, th there is something the U.S. is intended to protect and then there's something the U.S. intends to promote. What are those uh, topics and issues here? Well, according to the Commerce Secretary, what the U.S. must protect is its definition of national security and its definition of human rights. And what it wants to promote uh, is trade and tourism. Now, of course, the problem comes in, which I think China has very clearly recognized, 
is that uh, every country must have a reasonable definition of national security. Otherwise, it not only is destabilizing to the world, but actually counterproductive to that own country's true national security interest. So I think this is a work in progress. Again, these dialogues, I think, are helpful. Hopefully, there is the ability to follow through on the U.S. side with whatever agreements are reached. Again, we have to remember that there is a presidential election coming up. There are some extreme things being said by Republican candidates, uh, including former President Trump. So there's a lot of concern around the world and capitals around the world. What happens? Uh, if the next president is not Biden, which you know is maybe a distressing thought. But again, we have to wait and see. But mm. this is what her definition of uh, protect and promote are. Mm. Well, Andy, are you talking about this uh, so-called uh, you know, window opportunity you know, before November when this uh, presidential election starts? I mean, hopefully, I mean, people are expecting a you know, heated discussion, in particular on China issue, probably very toxic for, I mean, too toxic for the Biden administration to do anything uh, to stabilize the relationship here. Well, not to go too much into U.S. domestic politics here, but I think that this is certainly perhaps a gamble that the Biden administration is making to say, let's be more conciliatory towards China. This might deliver uh, some short-term economic gains. Uh, and if Biden does win, re-election, then maybe these can be built upon. That being said, if a Republican does win, what we've seen repeatedly, though, is the campaign rhetoric and the actual behavior towards China can differ markedly as well. We go back to the Clinton era when Bill Clinton, as a candidate, said very extreme negative things about China and yet uh, went on to work uh, fairly effectively with China after he was president. And I think, again, this dynamic is only going to be reinforced uh, given the structural changes we see in the world today, with China becoming increasingly central to many diplomatic, not only economic, but diplomatic uh, issues around the world. Joe, hi. So, I mean, the structural uh, shift or changes uh, in the sense, you know, uh, if, if you read, uh, uh, I mean, Andy Wright, so it's, um, in a sense, it predetermines the relationship or the direction of the relationship. You know, probably efforts uh, like uh, the visit uh, right now being made by the two sides, yes, it will help stabilize the relationship to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, uh, there are strong, let's say, contradictions or problems uh, between the two countries. Yeah, I think the, those uh, differences uh, remain, even though there are uh, more visits from the U.S. side to China. However, the, uh, even before the visits, uh, U.S. side, and particularly uh, Jake Sullivan, had made it very clear that the U.S. does not want to make any major concessions to China. And also Secretary of Commerce Raimondo insisted uh, that uh, uh, all the export controls cannot be negotiated. So the U.S. position on uh, China has been remained pretty hard. Uh, even those uh, issues related to tariff that uh, is the leftover from the Trump administration, the Biden uh, administration still uh, has difficulties to even shift uh, just a little bit. So there's very little room at this uh, moment uh, to uh, actually improve uh, China-U.S. relations because of domestic barriers. And uh, like Andy stated, that the next election is coming and the U.S. domestic politics is still very much uh, poisonous, uh, particularly related to the issues uh, of China. And the Republicans continue to pressure the Biden administration, continue to attack it uh, as soft on China. So I think, yes, there's a major obstacle there. 
However, I think from the Chinese perspective, it doesn't matter which uh, administration is in the office because uh, China do, will do, will continue to open up, will continue to reform and push forward its uh, trade agenda with the, with the other world, with other uh, states and particularly developing countries. So I think China will do whatever it, it intends to do regardless of the uh, U.S. restrictions. And so it's up to the U.S. to, to, to decide whether or not to have a rational conversations with China and also a pragmatic uh, communication and also solutions with China on trade and investment. Because again, this is mutually beneficial. This is not, not benefiting China like uh, some of the U.S. politicians stated, and particularly the majority of the trade does not uh, benefit Chinese military or security apparatus like the U.S., uh, uh, you know, some of the U.S. politicians exaggerated. So again, if the U.S. really wanted to just de-risking and not decoupling, uh, they should limit the and, and clarify what exactly does they mean about national security? Where is the parameter and where do they want to go from here? Uh, and many of the technologies currently under restriction does not involve a major military application. And uh, for instance, all the uh, advanced chips that the U.S. restricting exporting from to Huawei, for instance, is used for civilian phones, and those are not related to security concerns. So again, like I said, establishing communication channels is good for both sides because they can communicate and discuss about these things and have a pragmatic solution, regardless of the political environment. Mm -hmm. William, uh, as Joe has said, obviously the working group uh, that will bring the uh, deputy commerce minister from both sides uh, meet you know, uh, twice a year, and the ministers will meet once a year. So, you know, more frequent discussion, direct communication between the two sides, uh, definitely that will help at least, you know, uh, help the understanding of each other in terms of a policy making to reduce the misunderstanding, uh, help stabilize the relationship of commerce, of trade and investment. Uh, so that's mutually, mutually beneficial. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I think uh, we have to recognize that the press generally concentrates on that very small sliver of trade that's, uh, that is, is where the tensions are, uh, advanced semiconductors. But there's a wide range of sectors and products that, that we still have to negotiate. For example, solar panels. China has been uh, the leading producer of solar panels uh, globally. Uh, but the United States also wants to develop its trade relations with Singapore developers and, and Canadian uh, producers and, and German producers. So the fact that we want to diversify our supply chain is not a threat to China. But what what these dialogues can do is to establish terms of trade and grounds for trade and the ground rules where the production of very efficient Chinese solar panels uh, and, and their pricing in the United States won't be viewed as dumping. Uh, that's just one example of where China excels very much in, in, in a production of, of a product, but it has to be negotiated how it's priced uh, in the United States. Similarly for electric vehicles and, 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 and opening up tourism is something that, that uh, the Secretary has emphasized as being very important in this relationship because people-to-people -people contact is one way of reducing that kind of uncertainty that, that is growing between two countries because of the lockdown of COVID. Well, William, uh, indeed, uh, the secretary mentioned about, uh, you know, speaks highly of this people-to-people -people exchange. And the two countries will have a, uh, a tourism conference uh, in the first half of next year. You know, she talked about the contribution from Chinese tourists to U.S., uh, you know, revenues and job creation. Is that the idea of the secretary herself or is there consensus of the U.S. Um, government there? 
I think that's been the view of the U.S. government going back to the, the opening of China uh, with, with Richard Nixon um, to be able to promote this kind of flow. Uh, both countries have benefited from scholars and, and, and students uh, going into each other's universities. Uh, and, and, and certainly uh, one of the things that, that uh, the United States has always tried to promote has been an openness of the universities. But again, the ground rules have to be set for what it is that that's are allowed to do within the United States and within Beijing. Uh, so, so I think one of the those types of, of groundwork have to be discussed and reestablished again because I think the the, the edges have been frayed uh, because of the lockdowns in both countries due to COVID and, and the restrictions that have been put in place uh, for health reasons have spilled over into what sounds like or what looks like uh, restrictions um, that, that are that are our national uh, security. The good example that I would say for Western investors would be the new Espionage Act uh, in, in China. It has caused a lot of, um, of, of information flows to be restricted. And, and a lot of Western investors saying we can't do due diligence without private sources of information. That would be one topic I think that would be high on the list of something to negotiate and to, to try to explain or find workarounds. Well, uh, Jeffrey, uh, William mentioned about uh, the uh, U.S. investors' complaints about the Chinese, uh, uh, obviously, uh, the business environment. And uh, there is also a report of their complaints to the Biden administration for their restrictive uh, policies, for example, the banning of investment or the vague practice uh, or the rhetoric. It's not that clear. And there's, um, there's a fear, the concern about the dangers of investing in China. Uh, what do you make of that? One of the nice things about the investment aspect of this is investors are actually, even amid uncertainty, investors are fairly good at assessing uncertainty. It's kind of what they do for a living. A little bit of clarity on things like investment into e-commerce. I mostly focus on digital companies. Investment into media, investment, you know, maybe not semiconductors because that is obviously more political this year, but a little bit of clarity on everything around those sensitive areas, and I think the investment dollars can move quite easily. So that's probably one of these areas where, you know, a simple agreement is going to make a big difference. Other areas, let's say semiconductors, and there's a lot going on in that sector right now, so I'm not sure mm-hmm. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of clarity on that going forward. But yeah, I, I think investment, we could see those, that money move with some high-level discussions like we're seeing this week. Yeah, do you think, you know, following the uh, rather, let's say, constructive and successful visit by Secretary Raimondo to Beijing, so there will be kind of a momentum being built to do more, probably, to smooth the environment for investment, uh, I would say, both ways, you know, Chinese investment in the U.S. or U.S. investment in China? I think on the areas that get reported, and I mostly focus on digital e-commerce, things like that, you know, and I'm I'm an American, so I'll speak as an American who lives in Asia. It's not clear that we're getting a lot of clarity coming out of the U.S. on what they really want, because they kind of keep escalating and up, you know, ratcheting up step by step. You know, it was tariffs, then it was tech supply chain. Now, recently, it's investment dollars and things like venture capital in a couple of years. Most of the uncertainty is coming from that side right now. And it's not clear that what their interests are, to tell you the truth. Um, and maybe they don't know yet. Maybe, maybe it hasn't. There isn't really a consensus. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'd be looking for. Is the U.S. government, which I'm talking about, not people or business government, mm-hmm. are they interested in significant investment dollars going to areas like e-commerce, dairy, 
soybeans, things like that that are inherently not, don't have political strategic aspects. I assume they do, but we haven't really heard that, and, and their actions create a bit of uncertainty about that, I think, at least this year. Mm -hmm. Uncertainty. Andy, so uh, help us understand you know, the U.S. goal of uh, basically escalating the restrictions and bans on doing trade or investment in China. Well, Qingdua, I also want to go back to this point about, you know, does the U.S. government want increased tourism from China? I think part of the fundamental problem is there really isn't a U.S. to deal with in that political power, political decision-making is fragmented. So while certainly I would say the Department of Commerce, maybe other government agencies want greater tourism for various reasons. There are also very powerful agencies like the DOD, the intelligence community, that probably don't want any tourism at all. So this makes it very, very difficult, as Jeff touched on, to really, for any interlocutor, not just China, but the EU, other parts of the world, to effectively deal with the U.S., just because there really isn't you know, one organization or one person that can really speak for the country. Um, and that makes it incredibly difficult, uh, I think, for countries all around the world, including China, to really formulate uh, effective policy efficiently. So we all struggle to do what we can and hope, uh, hope for the best. Mm -hmm. William, uh, your response? Well, I, I agree with Andy. In fact, uh, as an American, I, I find it incredibly difficult to negotiate the different uh, parts of government. Uh, and the most of the investors I know find regulatory structures difficult all around the world, and especially in the United States where it is so fractured. But I think, again, going back to, to what the important issues are, the, the press, as I said, focuses on areas of tension, but areas of, of really commonality are, are really huge and, and need to be developed more. Electric vehicles, uh, for example. Tesla has really gone to China and has refined its manufacturing in China to develop probably the, one of the best electric vehicles around because China has given competition to, to Tesla. But again, the two different technologies, uh, you know, Tesla vehicles, for example, when they're driving around in China, the, the cameras have to be shut off when they go to military installations, installations and, and other such things. Uh, and so there are restrictions that China puts on American companies, even when, when they're in China developing production for the Chinese market. So, so these terms have to be, I think, discussed at a higher level, what it is that will promote the kind of uh, investment flows into China. And as far as the high tech is concerned, people make such a big deal out of that, the chip and, and, and artificial intelligence, where China really is at the frontier. But China finances most of that internally. 85 percent of all of the money that goes to developing the chip industry in, in China is from Chinese sources. So foreigners are really have a very small role to play in terms of financing that kind of investment and, and those investment restrictions, I think, have, in my mind, a small impact on, on China. And China really has already uh, shown that it can lead the world in developing quantum computing, uh, character uh, facial recognitions and, and other such uh, technologies, which, which they have really uh, uh, excelled at. Zhao mm Hai, -hmm. obviously there's a lot to do, you know, between the two governments, the two countries, you know, to improve I mean, to stabilize, if not to improve their relationship here. And then, of course, you know, they, it, it's said that the Chinese concern is like, uh, you know, yes, the rhetoric, uh, you know, for example, from uh, uh, Secretary Raimondo is welcome, is, you know, is, is, is constructive here. Um, but the thing is like whether there will be actions matching that kind of rhetoric. Uh, uh, is that true? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we talk about tourism and also Chinese overseas students in, in the United States, prior to the pandemic, that contributed to over 50 billion U.S. dollars every year as U.S. Uh, sur surplus, uh, trade surplus. So I think uh, in many ways, U.S. interest groups like uh, universities, like tourism agencies, wanted to welcome back uh, all those students, all those tourists uh, to contribute to U.S. economy. However, right now, we all know that uh, it's very difficult to find a flight uh, from China to the United States directly. And China has repeatedly called the U.S. Uh, airlines, the U.S. government to increase uh, the number of flights. Uh, and so far, uh, even though they doubled uh, from the previous month, however, moving forward, it's still not going to service and uh, it's not still not uh, nearly enough to service this market. And so I think we need concrete steps to for, from both sides to increase the flight so that it can help people to people exchanges in the future. And uh, as you mentioned, next year, there will be a, a, a tourism summit between the two countries. And hopefully that summit will find more ways to increase tourism between the two countries. And I think there's a lot of space to do that. And I want to mention one thing that uh, we discussed before, which is counter-espionage law. And I think this has been uh, blown, exaggerated, blown out of proportion to the extreme, because uh, I think on the one hand, U.S. head of CIA came out and said that uh, the U.S. has reestablished a human intelligence network in China. So it's natural for China to update its counter-espionage law. And uh, some of the small cases only involve one or two companies, a couple of people. However, there are thousands and thousands of companies running in China that are not being harassed or raided or fined. So using little cases to scare other companies not investing in China, I think uh, that's a wrong way to look at this uh, picture. And uh, you know, a, a small portion or small action to protect national security is legitimized. And uh, you know, uh, normal business shouldn't worry about their own uh, business that, that is not involved in any intelligence collecting or anything uh, close to government national security agenda. So moving forward, I think the majority over, let's say 95% of the business should not be impacted by national security concerns and they should conduct normal business and expand their investment in China, both in China and the United States, because these two countries still have the highest uh, potent growth potential in the world and mutual investment will only reinforce the engine to drive the world economy out of post-pandemic economic problems. So I think that's what we needed to work together pra pragmatically. Well, briefly, Andy, obviously there's a recognition that, uh, you know, like isolating or trying to decouple from China is not really in the interest of the United States, you know, given uh, the Chinese status as uh, the largest trading nation and the uh, rising status, let's say, with, uh, with other developing nations like the BRICS expansion uh, as demonstrated in that case. Uh, so can we say, uh, you know, yes, there will be problems, but still the relationship, especially commercial relationship, will remain largely there? Well, I think that the U.S. is really alone. So if anyone is being isolated, it's the U.S. with this policy. Because we look around the world, as we mentioned, BRICS uh, with the expansion mm -hmm. certainly shows those countries interested in China. Europe has recognized it must trade and invest with China. The U.S., because perhaps it possibly could try to go it alone, doesn't mean it should, yes. uh, is leading it down, I think, this erroneous path oh, right. and isolating itself. We have to stop there. With that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qinduo. See you next time.